Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Delighted to have you here with us. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Scott, the lead pastor here. If you're online too, hey, welcome to you. We're glad you're um, checking us out online. There's also an aspect where there many folks are, are having an exploration of faith and faith community and we just counted a great privilege to be a part of that, uh, wherever you may be at in that, in that journey. We, um, <clears throat> we live in a society where we love to review everything, from how good your plumber is, to how great that hair dryer was, how the restaurant is, how the service was. We love to re- review everything, and there's some advantages to that. I confess that I love reviews. Sometimes, though, that can... Uh, influence the way that we think about something like this. We can think about church in a review kind of mindset. So we might, we might consider an experience in a church and think about, well, how long did the pastor preach? Was it too short, too long? It's usually too long, not too short. Uh, what kind of music is it? Is it traditional? Is it contemporary? Are they super expository or not expository enough? Uh, and so it can just kind of influence the way that we think about the church. But I think that there's a a more important question at play here, and that is this. What does Jesus think about his church? If he built the church, if he designed it, if he implemented it, if he commissioned it, what he thinks about the church is actually much more important. What would his expectation be? What would his desires be for us? How would he look at our church, and how would he review our church? How would he review us as followers of Christ? What would his expectations be? We would want to strive after that. You know, interestingly, there's a passage in scripture in the book of Revelation, not Revelations, but Revelation, where Jesus actually leaves a review for seven ancient churches. 2,000 years ago, Jesus gives a a revelation. He reveals himself, what we would call a Christophany, when Jesus appeared to his friend John and, and revealed things that were going to come, but he also gave a review for these seven ancient churches, actual people like you and me in an actual space, in an actual time. And so we're looking at that, and we're considering how we can take lessons from those from that review of Christ to his church and how that can influence us. And so we've been looking at this map. There's a map of what is now Turkey today. Um, and, and he wrote seven letters, and they went in this order. See if you can figure out what's going on. It went Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. See how it went right around that postal route? It was meant to be carried around from church to church so that we would understand what Jesus' heart was for us and is for us and how we maybe are out of alignment and how we need to come back into alignment. Now, what I want to do today is we're going to look at um, the six of the seven of them. We have this week and next week to go. And uh, we're going to be looking in the book of Revelation. If you have one of those orange Bibles under your chair, there's a couple of them floating around. If you don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you. Just write your name and bring it back, right? Make sure you read it. Um, it's page 839 in there. What I want to do is I want to read the whole passage. We're going to gather some observations. Think about then how we can draw some conclusions into our life together. That's the plan, okay? So let's read that together. This is going to be Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 7. It'll also be on the screen. It says this. It says, To the church in Philadelphia, 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, there are those times when those who follow you uh, are like deep in the Psalms and there's heart level conversation and it's got this five octave range emotionally and we saturate ourselves in the Psalms. There are times when we are in the narratives of the gospel and can the gospels and see the heart of Jesus come through, through the events that took place. And today we peer into mysterious, deep revelations that Christ wanted us to understand. Truthfully, it's a, a path less traveled. And yet, uh, the heart and the mind of our Savior comes through. And so we would ask, God, that your spirit would be as present in this study in the book of Revelation as it would be as we study the Psalms or the Gospels. We ask that you would fill us. We ask that you would illuminate your word. Let it pop off the page. We just recognize this truth that your spirit reminds us of everything that you've spoken to us and makes it come to life in our hearts. So we just start in this place by asking you to be present in the midst of this to show us, show us maybe where we're out of alignment. We soften our hearts before you, God. We ask that you be present with us here this weekend. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, Philadelphia, um, if you look at that map, go ahead and show that map then again there, Dan. Uh, if you look at this map, you'll notice it doesn't look anything like Pennsylvania because this is not the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. This is modern-day Turkey. It's actually a town that doesn't have that name anymore. It's called um, Alashakesh currently, and it's called the, they call it the city of God. And, and historically speaking, this was, uh, Philadelphia was created by a guy named Atlas II. And the deal with Atlas II, the his, history books tell us that he so was devoted to his brother, um, and the Romans tried to make Attalus uh, a king because they thought his brother was dead, and then when his brother wasn't dead, Attalus said, no, my brother's actually supposed to be king, and so he defended the rights of his brother, and he got the nickname Attalus Philadelphus, the word that we get brotherly love from. That's the name that this really came from. Something that's really significant about the city of Philadelphia, that it was agriculturally a very fertile land. There would have been vineyards all along the hillside around the city. It would look like Napa Valley. As a matter of fact, here's a picture of it. You'll see that there's all sorts of palm trees, and it was actually known for their Turkish dried grapes even to this day. 
And I am all about dried grapes. I'm, I'm really about raising awareness. But here's the thing. The reason that it was fertile, the reason that it was fertile uh, was because the soil was rich with volcanic ash. Because we know this now, geologists know that Philadelphia is actually situated right on a fault line, which means they had earthquakes all the time and tremors that would rumble afterwards. As a result, the city itself was completely destroyed in AD 17. It was rebuilt by the Romans. They gave them money and let them rebuild it. But, but this, these, these people who lived in the city would constantly be in a state where there would be tremors, things that would shift their foundation, uh, disoriented them, made confusion culturally and economically and even with their organization. And so as a result, they would end up running to the hills whenever there would be a tremor. They would just get out of the city, out to these farms in the community, and then they would come back. In fact, some of them would even do this daily. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of manuscripts that would write about how unreliable the, the, the buildings were. Like you would walk into a building and see cracks everywhere. People were like, I'm not going to sleep in here. This is crazy. So they would get out of there at night. They'd come back in the morning. That was just kind of how they lived. And it, and it reminds me, it reminds me, that, that after an earthquake, and I've not been through one, but I, I've heard people talk about it, that when, when, when an earthquake strikes, there's tremendous confusion. There's tremendous disorientation. Uh, uh, resources are not easily distributed. There's problems pulling that all together. And now we don't have to deal with earthquakes as much maybe here where we live, but truthfully, if we stop and think about it, there's a lot of cultural changes that have happened and in many ways in the last 50 years it's been as if there's been a cultural earthquake that has occurred culturally morally ethically spiritually relationally that kind of confusion that exists after an earthquake is a lot of what we deal with now what's the right way up how do I, it's disorienting i'm confused uh, we live in that now. And so they, they were in this position where, where their foundation was shaken. Where do we turn? Where do I turn in the middle of all of that? It's why Jesus' words were so very meaningful that we read. I don't know if you caught it, but this is what he said to them. He said, I, I'm building a city for you that you never have to leave. They're so used to going out and coming back. He says, I'm building a city for you, and it's built on a firm foundation, and you don't have to leave and come back and leave and come back. It would have meant a lot to them. The other thing that's interesting to know about Philadelphia, that, that this would have been one of the smallest congregations of the seven churches that we're looking at. They weren't very big, and yet Jesus has some of the most positive things to say about this church. He says this, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, now, when he says the, to the angel in the church in Philadelphia, um, we talked about this in week one, the word angel is best translated messenger, and that could be a human messenger. So many scholars agree, and I agree, that I think they're actually talking to uh, maybe the leadership of that church. So almost we could write, hey, to the pastor in this church, share this with your congregation. To that pastor, sh share this. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Now, this seems kind of strange to us. What's he talking about right here? 
I want to show you that there's actually a lot of significance when Jesus uses this kind of language. It doesn't make sense to us now because we look at this through the grid of, you know, uh, contemporary citizens of the United States, but these were ancient people with an ancient worldview. They read different books than we did, than we do, right? So they would have been very familiar with the, the, the law and the prophets um, and the, the Jewish Old Testament, so what Jesus was sharing from, when he says, what he opens, no one can shut, what he shuts, no one can open, this would have been a direct reference to a passage in the book of Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, I just want to share it with you, it'll be on the screen here. It says this, Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two: I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, what he opens, no one can shut, what he shuts, no one can open. See, it's verbatim, he, he literally copied that. Clearly, he's quoting from this passage. So what's happening in this Isaiah 22 is, is this. There's this guy. His name is Shebna. So if you're looking for a name for a child, you can... Little Shebby, right? Uh, and Shebna was the um, palace administrator. So the king gave authority to the palace administrator. This was someone who had access to the resources of the kingdom, who had authority of the king, and he worked for the king. He was over all of the palace affairs. He had keys to the kingdom. This guy Shebna, though, he was very proud and he was arrogant. So God calls judgment upon him and says, hey, I'm going to take your authority away. I'm going to give it to your servant named Eliakim, was his name. He says he's going to put on this guy Eliakim the shoulders, put on, put on his shoulders the key of the house of David. So what does the Bible mean when he talks about, like, the house of David? You know, not only was David a mighty king in Israel's history, but he was a special anointed king. God, God went to him specially and said, not only are you going to rule over Israel, but I'm going to do something mighty through you so that through your lineage, there's going to come a king that is not just going to be over Israel, but he's going to be over all the nations. And it's going to be a king that's going to make everything right. And this brokenness that you experience, I'm going to make whole through this person. And, and, and the Old Testament didn't know who this was yet. They didn't know. They didn't know that it was going to be a guy named Jesus, born in Bethlehem, coming from this town of Nazareth. They, they called him the anointed one, the servant of God. And God said to David, I'm through your lineage, this person is going to come and he's going to bring my kingdom to bear. He's going to bring heaven down here to earth. He's going to be the Messiah. And it says that the keys were put on the shoulders of this person who's going to have dominion over the house of David. What's up with the shoulder thing? Because if I give my keys to my son, I just put it in his hand, right? Well, back then, they didn't have precision machining that could make small metal parts and small locks. They actually were probably very large pieces. As a matter of fact, there's a picture I found of an ancient key. Um, Dan, go ahead and show that, and it's a little low resolution. But it was so heavy that they would sling it over their shoulder to unlock the, the doors for, like, the treasury or the armory. And oftentimes, it would have a sash or maybe a necklace, or something that showed that this was a person that had special authority. These would be guarded places. So when you see the person coming that has a key, not, not everybody had keys, right? Uh, so it was an important person. It meant authority. It meant that they had access to the throne room, to the resources, to the authority of the king. So functionally, functionally, 
he was saying, this person is going to have access to the kingdom of God, the resources, the provision, the promises, the presence of the king. Open access. In other words, he's saying that, he's saying that this is going to be the way that, that God's kingdom is going to be open to you. Jesus says this. He says that he has the keys to the house of David. The keys to the house of David. It's an illustrative way to say this. I hold the keys to the kingdom of God. I am the only way to the kingdom of God. And the only way you're going to have relationship with God, you're going to have access to him. Now, this, this actually touches on an aspect of Christianity that's really difficult for us. There's a bit of dissonance in our hearts, culturally speaking, about this. If we're considering the claims of Jesus, this is something that we have to wrestle with. It's probably one of the most challenging aspects because it's this, is that Jesus claims to be the exclusive way to God. It's only possible through him. And there are people that as they think about Jesus, we would say, well, I love, I love Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. You know, he stood up for the poor, the oppressed. Did you know that Jesus gave a voice to women when women were treated as objects, as, as property? And Jesus stepped in and said, no, they're, they're, they're actually made in the image of God. They're image bearers of God himself. It gives dignity to women. Did you know that Christianity was the, the forebearers of giving rights to women? Jesus, I love all of that part of them. But then, then they hear his words where he says... I am the exclusive way to God. And that's, that creates some di dissonance for us. That creates challenges. You know, he's not saying this. He's not saying I'm the only way to God because he's trying to keep people away from God. That's sometimes how we can understand that. In fact, what he's trying to do is he's trying to make a way for people to connect with God. He's trying to make a way that they can actually be with him. This last week, I was watching a documentary online about uh, this snake house in Australia, and they said everything in Australia tries to kill you, I guess. Uh, and so this snake house, was a, there was a snake handler, and his job was to take the most venomous snakes in the world and milk them. Don't think like milking a cow, milking them, but they, he takes them and they bite into a small vial and extracts the venom. And so... He said, I'm going to start with this snake right here. It's called the Inland Taipan. It's the most venomous snake in the world. One bite from this snake can kill 100 humans, 100 adults. And his job was to take the venom and to develop anti-venom that would treat them. Now, if I got bitten by an Inland Taipan, it's not narrow-minded or obtuse to say, hey, listen, there's a 100% chance that you're going to die unless you take this anti-venom. Like that's, not, that's not bigoted. That's not narrow-minded at all. It's actually the most loving, the most compassionate thing you can say. In fact, how much would you have to hate someone if you see them get bit by a snake like that to say, you know what, you do you. You're down with some essential oils. Here's a Band-Aid for you. Uh, you know, you could, here's some gummies. There's some natural little elements in here that'll make you feel. Like how much would you have to hate someone to do that. So it's, it's not being bigoted. It's not being closed-minded. It's actually a heart of compassion that Jesus had for people. But he makes a claim that's radically exclusive. Here's some of them. Here's some of them. Just listen to what Jesus says. He says in John 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
They will come in and go out. They'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's not trying to keep people away from God. He's trying to make a way to them. John 14, 6, he says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So all I'm saying is, Jesus makes some radical claims, and we have to square up with that. So he tells them, I have the key. I'm the only one that has the key. Jesus tells the Philadelphians then, he says, I know your deeds. I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you've kept my word and have not denied my name. You know, this letter is actually pretty unique because of the seven churches. This is one of two where Jesus doesn't have any rebuke for them. He only gives them a commendation. He only says, hey, this is good stuff that you're doing. So what does Jesus take note of? He says, I know your good deeds. We don't really know what those good deeds were, but we have some clues as we look at the rest of the letters that were being spent around, sent around. It would be things like this. It would be hard work, perseverance. It would be people that fought against false teachers. It would be people that didn't tolerate wickedness. These would be folks that endured in persecution. This would be folks that, that would actively love God, love other people. These were people that were faithful and service towards each other in and outside of the church. I want to submit to you this, that when Jesus says, I know your deeds, what's he talking about? He's talking about people who looked at what Jesus had to share, the commandments of Christ, and they simply obeyed. That he was dealing with obedience. That when we orient our lives about how we live out our faith, that we would say, you know what, I want my life to be defined and directed by Jesus Christ. So when he says things like, love your enemies, it's not just left on the page. I actually stop and think about that, and I integrate that into my life. See, it's not just head knowledge. I actually want to live it out. It's why we say here that we want to know it and live it and give it away. It's not an intellectual concept. I'm actually integrating it into the way that I live. I'm going to put that into practice. Here's what's the case, though. I, I, I know this can be true about me, is I can even step into church, and I can sing... God, I give you my heart. Lord, I want to build my life upon you. But if I'm not careful, that'll be a bunch of words that are not backed up by actions that are being defined and directed by Christ. I, I can profess faith, but I may not actually possess it. I can, I can say when I was in camp at sixth grade, I made this decision to follow Jesus, but if you looked at my life and how I lived, does it actually line up with that? Is there actually fruit? Is there anything that backs that up, or is it just lip service? On occasion, I'll have one of my three beautiful children come to me and say, Dad, I love you, and they'll give me a hug, and Boy, I love that. I love that as a parent. Don't you love it when your kids do that? Right? Meanwhile, earlier in the day, the kids were at it with each other, and they were just in strife, and they were picking on each other and being cruel to each other. And there are times where I stop and I say, I love you too, child. If you really loved me, you'd see how it breaks my heart that you're mean to your, your sibling. You'd see how when you lied about taking that thing, that that broke relationship. If you really loved me, there'd be... Something that showed up, 
in how you live and how you get along with your siblings. Let me ask you a question. If someone was to look at your life, not just do you go to church, but if someone was to look at your life and specifically your obedience, would it be obvious that you're following after Jesus? Would they say, hey, you're different and the way that you navigate things isn't... Like when someone else wants to get even, you're like not phased by that. You like bless those who curse you. Why do you do that? Like when when someone steals your stapler at work and you don't get angry at them and you get another one and then they go to take it again and you don't freak out because you actually take Jesus at his word when he says like, hey, they take your cloak, give them, you know, your sweatshirt too. Like, do you actually do that? What would they see? You know what James chapter two challenges us with? And actually, before I get there, like, you know, I have, I have a little bit of a heart check sometimes when I hear Jesus say, I know your deeds. Because as Protestants, we can have such an aversion to anything that would feel like it's, I'm earning my salvation with Jesus based off of what I do. Because there have been real abuses of that in the history of the church. That somehow if I give enough money that I'm good with God. Or if I just do the song and dance. If I just say the right thing or go through communion or get married in the church. Then I'm good with God. Completely devoid of something that I actually truly feel in my heart. So when I read that I have this check. But it's, it's fascinating to me that James, the brother of Jesus in James chapter 2. He gets at that whole thing and he says, hey, you know, you can Say it with your mouth that you believe it. But if your life doesn't back it up, what you say you believe amounts to nothing. It amounts to nothing. In fact, he says this. He says, I know some of you say you believe in God, and, and, and honestly, we'll get that too. I mean, I'll, I'll talk with people that'll say, you know, church is cool, I believe in God, that's great. But is their life defined and directed by Christ? Because James tells us this. You say you believe in God? Awesome. (laughs) Do you know that the demons actually say the same thing? And they shudder. Intellectual assent that there is a God is not the same thing as submitting your life to the Lordship of Christ. It's not the same thing. So when I think about who we are as a church, do we want to know Jesus? Well, we do. We want to know his word. We want to understand the Bible. We want all of that to be true. We want to encourage each other. We want to, we want to, when we're down, we want to lift each other up. But ultimately, our job is to step into relationship with one another and to say, are, is your life walking in obedience to Jesus Christ? So I'll step into situations where I'm counseling marriages maybe that are having challenges. Like, I'm not that good of a counselor. Like, I don't know how to fix your problems. But what I will do is I'll say, God's word says you need to forgive. Are you forgiving? Do that. Do that first. Walk in obedience to Jesus. It's fascinating to me. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives a commission to the church. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? And he tells us, by baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What's the next word? Teaching them to, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The Holy Spirit shows up. He says, I'm going to remind you of everything Jesus has said. It's teaching to obey. It's submitting your life to the Lordship of Christ. I've been thinking about that so much lately. And this passage has encouraged me this weekend. And I'll share why in just a moment. But I've been thinking about that because so many times we, we are in this confused moment like after an earthquake culturally speaking and how are we supposed to react politically 
When people are confused about their own identity, what's the posture of the church and a Christian supposed to be? How do I, how do I feel about this international thing or this political thing going on or this school board thing or this masks or not masks or whatever, all that stuff, you know? We try to get all that figured out. And I feel like Jesus would say to us, are you being faithful with what I've put right in front of you? Walk with faithfulness. Walk with obedience with what's right in front of you. Can I, can I tell you what I find so very encouraging about this, this whole passage? Is I think all of us know that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Church that gets it right every single time in every single category. We know that's true because there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. And if there was a perfect church, then I couldn't go to it. And you couldn't go to it because the moment I stepped into it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. And yet Jesus says this. I find it so encouraging. I find it so encouraging that Jesus would say that even though there's no such thing as a perfect church, it's still possible for a church and a Christ follower to be faithful and walk in obedience. I think that's awesome because sometimes I can feel like, you know, if I'm, not, if I'm not planting 35 churches and I'm not building the orphanage and if I'm not rescuing people that are in slavery here, if I'm not doing other, like I'm not measuring up. Are you being faithful with the little things that are right in front of you? I find it fascinating that Jesus identified what was the thing that pleased him and it was simple obedience. It was simple obedience. So what, what would Jesus say to us as a church? It means that we can be a church where Jesus would say, well done. Not that you're perfect, but that we would be walking in humble obedience. Not only does he commend them as we move on, he actually makes an incredible commitment. He says this, he says, I know your deeds. See, this is what he tells them to do. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You have kept my word even when the culture shifts around you, even when it feels like an earthquake and when it's confusing and disorienting. You've not denied me. You've held fast. Because of this, I have placed an open door before you that no one else can shut. No one else can shut it. So what's up with this open door thing? What's this about? Well, there are two opinions on this matter. One would be that this would be an open door of salvation, an open door. You'd have access to the kingdom of God, to the provisions, to the relationship with God. This would have been very meaningful to the Christians in Philadelphia because uh, at the time, you know, there was these people that Jesus called of the synagogue of Satan. (laughs) Like, that's a that's quite a, a label to have. I wouldn't want that label. These, these Jewish individuals. Now, what was going on there was uh, in, the Ro- in the Roman culture, everyone was required to bow down and worship Caesar as Lord. Wasn't a big deal because for most folks, they're like, well, I've already got 20 gods. What's one more? Doesn't matter to me. Problem was this group of people that, f- that worship Jehovah God, the one true God, they weren't allowed to do that. So there was actually a special dispensation given to the Jews in that area where they were allowed to not bow a knee to Caesar. But in order for that to happen, they would say, this is just for the people in your synagogue. That was where they would gather their house of worship. And you need to keep an active role of who those people are so we know who to excuse from the law and not to excuse from the law. 
So the Christian, Christianity, when it started up, you know, it looks very similar to Jewishness. They worshiped the Jehovah God. They read the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, they would gather together in homes and in the synagogues too, and they would worship, and they would follow this rabbi from Nazareth. But then, you know, they would do things like they would say, hey, my righteousness doesn't come from me following all of these prescribed laws. My, I know I can't do it on my own. It only comes through faith in our teacher, Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. And so this rubbed the Jews the wrong way. And they started outing them. Now, when they outed them, this is what it meant. They were no longer on the roll. So they would have, in a very real sense, lost uh, they, they would have been subject to beating. They would have been subject to their property being confiscated and fines, and in some cases, for some of them, death. So Jesus promises that he calls them the synagogue of Satan, liars, people that weren't getting it right, and he would say this. I just find this fascinating. I guess we could preach about this longer. We don't need to. Jesus promises them, hey, these people that have rejected you, here's how it's going to play out. Someday, they're going to stand before me, the great judge, when all is brought together, and I'm going to say, hey, you remember those people that you were outing? Remember those people that you treated like, like filth? I love them. I approve of them. Like God's, God's vindication, God's vengeance is what Jesus was talking about. A little bit of an in-your-face <laughs> for those Christians. So it, it very well could have been a door of salvation. But the other thought is that it would be a door of opportunity. It, it's fascinating. That phrase is used all over the New Testament. Paul would say, I pray that a door would be open for me to be able to proclaim who Jesus is to the people around us. That was consistently used in that way. I actually think, when I think about the door of salvation or the door of opportunity, uh, I, I, I actually think it's both. Jesus is saying the door is open to salvation, and because you're faithful in the small things, because you're obedient, there's going to be an opportunity that's open to you. You're going to have a greater impact. It means that your church, your life groups, these are going to be an access point for connecting people to experience and have relationships with God, to be, to be able to receive the, the, the presence and the promises and the provisions of God. And I'm going to create a space on earth through your church that's going to have that kind of eternal impact. He'd say, you're not perfect, but I'm going to do mighty things through you. What else encourages me is this, that is when he says this, in verse 8, he says, I know your deeds, I've placed before you an open door. I, I know that you have little strength. I know that you have little strength, yet you haven't denied me, you've kept my word, you followed after me. Now, most likely what he's talking about is that this is a small congregation, and they were facing strong opposition. And they may have been tempted to say, you know what? Guys, just come around, come meet in my house. Let's just huddle and cuddle. Let's be the frozen chosen. And we'll just keep them all out there. And we'll hang out on our own. And we'll care for our own. We'll turn inward. And yet Jesus says to them, say, no huddling. No huddling. Because the access to opportunity never came from you in the first place. It comes from me. I hold the keys to that. What I open, no one's going to be able to shut. I hold the keys to the provision and the presence of God. This is so encouraging to me. 
Because Jesus says, hey, when you feel weak, when you feel like you don't have power or you don't have resources, even though you don't feel like you're big and you're this, I'm going to do something through you and I'm going to do something in you. And I find this so encouraging to me. Maybe, Maybe you feel like your faith is strong all the time and like you're ready to take on every mountain and every enemy that comes along. Can I just tell you, that's a rare feeling for me. Many times I feel really weak. Just this last week, I reached out to some friends and I said, I I feel sad. I feel sad because of the sin of others, my sin, the sin of the world. I feel weak right now in the midst of that. It fills me with encouragement that Jesus says, I know, I know that you feel emotionally thin but I'm in the business of working with those people who are poor in spirit Jesus would say blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted blessed are the poor in spirit they will inherit the kingdom of God in those times where I'm, I'm, I'm going through life and I'm like you know God I know that there's this thing going on Maybe for you, it might be in your marriage, and you're like, I, I need this major turnaround with my spouse, and I don't know how. I don't even feel like I have a big faith about it. Like, I'm holding on by this much. I'm holding on by this much for this schooling issue, or for this work thing, and I just feel like it's going to give way, and I'm doing my best to hold on right now, and my faith is, I don't feel like I have this much faith. I feel like I've got that much. I think Jesus would look at us and say, mustard seed size faith and if you just have this much faith you can tell that mountain to be cast into the sea because it's never been about you it's always been about me the truth is God always uses the weak to lead the strong that's why God would use a stuttering murderer called Moses to lead his people out of oppression in Egypt God would use a prostitute, Rahab, to deliver his people into the hands, uh, deliver the enemy into the hands of his people. God would use a guy cowering in a wine press to, 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 to vanquish the enemies of Israel. God would use David, this murderous adulterer, <laughs> to establish the line of the Messiah that would save the world. God would use a hot-headed fisherman named Peter that when someone asked if he followed Jesus, he threw out explicatives and said, no way. To be the rock that he built his church on. So if you feel like your faith is ever weak, God would say, I can do big things through weak people who walk in faithful obedience one day at a time. You know, I, I can have a tendency to think, you know, we're in a locked, we're like getting out of a pandemic. We don't even have our own building. We're 75 people in the room. Who am I to do anything about the woes happening around the world? I, I don't know how to organize to, to fix these problems. I'm not a politician. I'm not a celebrity. How am I going to influence the world? I'm just a little church in the sticks of Maryland. What are we supposed to do about anything? And Jesus would say, the faithful church is the hope of the world. 
That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, it says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world to despise things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And listen, Jesus is always calling his followers into a mission that is so far beyond our resources so that we will actually rely on him. He's going to call you to lead your family when you feel weak, like, who am I to lead my family to pray? Who am I to lead my family in this area? I feel tapped out. He's going to say, I know, you need to lean into me. He's always going to use us in ways that we feel like we're insufficient, so we learn to rely on him. And when we're faithful, he's going to open the door in front of us. So after this, after this, Jesus goes on and, and he goes on to talk about those faithful followers. He's going to give them his protection. He's going to give them his provision. He's going to give them his promise. They're going to reign with him forever. And then he closes out the whole passage saying this. He says, as he did with all of the letters, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what do we do with this today? What's our conclusion? How can we wrap this up? Here's some things to consider. That our impact is determined by our obedience. Our impact is determined by our obedience. To be a faithful church that follows Jesus Christ the best way we can in our day-to-day lives is the best way that we can impact the world. If we are simply the church, if we are simply a restorative, gospel-saturated group of Christians who say, you know what, I'm going to learn to forgive, I'm going to learn to be generous, I'm going to learn to be a friend, I'm going to learn to be faithful in the small things. You know, you know how many times we think, God, you know, if you would just lay in front of us, we would, we would build that orphanage, and I would do this huge thing if you just put it right in front of me, God, and he says, why would I give you this huge thing when you're not being faithful with what's right in front of you? Be faithful in the small things, and Jesus says, I will open a door. The challenge is this. We want to follow God up into the mountaintops, and he says, follow me in the trenches. And in the trenches, you know what? Obedience is hard, and I'm distracted. Frankly, I'm a little bored sometimes. Eugene Peterson wrote the message, but he also wrote a book with a brilliant title, and it says this. He says, following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Small steps day after day, following after him. That's so helpful to me. It's so helpful to me. Let me ask you a few questions. Just we think about this stuff. You know, when you think about your life, and maybe, maybe even just close, close your Bible, turn off your phone, and just think for a moment. Let's kind of invite the Spirit into our time here. And I just want to ask some questions and the question that I, I want to, I guess that I want to probe through is what are those small steps of obedience that God is calling you to that you, you've kind of ignored it or you've shut it off? So like when it comes to your business practices, what are those small ways where you're choosing to not follow Jesus' commands and you're thinking, you know, no one will see it, doesn't really matter. How about, how about in your marriage? Where, where, is that, where is that small spot of obedience that you need to walk in 
You know, maybe it's that choice to say, I'm going to forgive them again and again. I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to choose to forgive them. I'm going to choose to selflessly serve and with my family. Small steps of obedience. Maybe it's in your, fi- your finances. You know, you're, you're asking, God, deliver me from my debts. But you still have these idols of materialism and, and I just have to have the next car or whatever it is. And Jesus say, you're not even living inside your means. You need to walk in obedience in that area. How about in your school? Maybe long obedience in the same direction means that you're being a friend to that person that doesn't seem to have it. What is that thing for you? Just invite you to close your eyes and uh, spend just a, a few moments here in prayer. The team's going to come up. We're just going to transition at this point. But I want to pray together. And can we ask God just to show us those, that, that long obedience in the same direction? That those little things that when they add up over the long haul, they become a huge influence. God, I'm encouraged by this. Um, I felt your spirit guiding me and leading me to, to think and consider what obedience looks like in my life in small areas. And just as I walk alongside people, say in that relationship that's dissolving, what are those small steps of obedience? To be kind, to not retaliate. Uh, in that business deal, in your finances, in your relationships. God, lead us, guide us. We want to we wanna build our lives upon you. Jesus, thank you that you take those who are poor in spirit, that you take those who are uh, foolish in the eyes of the world to do amazing things for you. And we rest, God, knowing that you are capable and able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine when we step into faithfulness to you. God, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. Pray this in the name of Christ.